You're listening to the Global Futures Podcast with me, Joel Sandu. In this episode, we'll take a dive into the issue of water. No pun intended. Water is a precious resource and a serious concern for millions across the globe. The most recent water shortage crisis in Cape Town refocused attention to this issue. The world's fresh water supplies are very unevenly distributed and the lack of clean water has already led to tensions within and between countries. Add to this climate change, urbanization and population growth, all of which are increasing concerns about how to provide water for everyone. If water is so crucial to the very existence of all things on our planet, can these issues fuel cooperation rather than competition? What can be done to make the delivery and management of water supplies more effective? Are governments doing enough or too much to protect resources? To talk to us about the pressures on one of the world's most precious resources, we are joined by Scott Moore, who recently published a book called Subnational Hydropolitics that looks at conflict, cooperation, and institution building around water resources with examples from China, France, India, and the United States. Scott argues that international water conflicts is rare, but that water conflicts at a subnational level between regions, communities, groups of people within a nation are increasingly prevalent and demand attention and action from policymakers. Scott is a water policy expert and an alumnus of the Global Governance Futures Program. He currently works as a water resource management specialist with the World Bank Group. Previously, he was an environment, science, technology, and health officer for the U.S. Department of State and an international affairs fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Scott, it's uh, great to have you with us and welcome to the Global Futures Podcast. Thanks so much, Joel. It's a pleasure to uh, be here and thank you for having me on. So let me start by asking the very basic and perhaps naive question. Why is it important to talk about water and water politics today? Well, I think um, we're kind of facing uh, something like a perfect storm in terms of uh, in terms of the world's water resources right now. And I think the best illustration of that um, is uh, what you saw in Cape Town earlier this year, which you know was in the um, the news for quite a while because the uh, uh, mayor and city officials came out with a warning uh, to residents that the city might actually have to turn off the taps uh, at some point uh, during the late spring if uh, if residents weren't able to reduce their water use. Fortunately. Uh, it didn't seem like that uh, that scenario came to pass, and Cape Town got a little bit more, uh, got a little bit of relief in terms of some rainfall. So the, the immediate crisis has been averted. But that example, I think, really uh, helped focus attention on this kind of perfect storm. And I think that perfect storm has three uh, elements. The first is uh, related to climate change. So for some time now, we've we've been seeing uh, many parts of the world experiencing uh, higher temperatures, generally less rainfall. Uh, as compared to the uh, the historical average over the, the last couple centuries. Uh, and then even more uh, uh, problematically, uh, a lot of increasing variability in terms of when uh, one water is available, whether in the form of rainfall or um, or from surface water uh, resources, which which most cities particularly um, rely on for, for their water supply. Um, in addition to that, we've got um, some kind of economic demographic trends uh, so urbanization in almost every country in the world uh, that increases demand for uh, uh, water for drinking and for bathing and for all kinds of uh, domestic uses, 
Um, and then fi uh, also industrialization in lots of parts of the world where you uh, have uh, pretty dramatically increasing water demand for factories and other, um, other uses associated with uh, economic growth and development. And then the third and final, um, I think, element of this perfect storm is maybe what I would call institutional. Um, so even as we've had these um, uh, uh, changes in terms of uh, water availability on the one, the one hand and then demand, uh, generally rising demand on the other hand, we really haven't kept pace in terms of uh, our institutional uh, frameworks and our, uh, our organizational structures. Uh, and even more um, uh, pressingly, and we saw this uh, particularly in Cape Town, uh, most governments, both national and uh, urban uh, or municipal, really haven't kept pace uh, in terms of the types of investments uh, that they need to ensure that there's adequate water supply um, and that that supply remains resilient uh, if, for example, there's a drought, as Cape Town experienced. So I would say that uh, the reason that uh, this issue is, is pressing is really because of this sort of perfect storm. Uh, and I would say in terms of politics, um, what's important about that in terms of water is the fact that unlike a lot of other resources, um, water is uh, extremely political. It touches everyone and every sort of economic sector. So any kind of decision about how to use water uh, quickly becomes very contentious. I'll turn our attention to these three elements that you mentioned uh, in just a bit. Um, but first, I want to ask what really struck me when I, when I uh, came across your reading is uh, that you argue the real challenges about water are not technical or hydrological, but they are, as you just mentioned, political and ethical. Can you explain to our listeners a little more what you mean by that? Sure. I think what I was uh, what I was trying to to drive at is that at the same time that we have these pretty big challenges, um, we do have uh, technological or sort of engineering based solutions uh, to many of them. Um, so, you know, if, for example, we're talking about a, a city that uh, might be running uh, short of water, uh, in most uh, cases, uh, you know, most of the world's major cities happen to be uh, located along the, uh, the coast. So for a lot of cities, there's a viable option for uh, to do desalination, which can really help to alleviate pressure on uh, uh, domestic, municipal and industrial uh, water demand. The problem is that it's really expensive. Uh, and that most cities don't have the financial and fiscal resources to really make uh, use of that effectively. So uh, in general, I think we have the sort of technology to put it a little uh, glibly. What we don't necessarily have uh, are the, the institutional elements in place to, uh, to do that. And so what you would need, for example, to finance desalination in a lot of cities uh, would be to raise uh, water rates. And that, for virtually any politician in any country, uh, is going to be a really difficult thing to do because nobody likes to see, uh, you know, their their bills go up, and particularly for uh, so essential a uh, a resource as water. So I think that's where uh, the politics come in and the ethics come in, particularly when you're talking about you know very poor, disadvantaged uh, populations uh, or people who might have trouble affording uh, increases in their in their water uh, water bills or water rates. Mm -hmm. And talking about politics and ethics, uh, one can also see that, you know, access to and control over water uh, can be used as a means for geopolitical power. And we've seen this in examples in the Middle East. And here I'm thinking about Turkey, Lebanon, Syria, and even in Israel. Can local conflicts over water lead to regional conflicts in the future? 
Well, you know, this is something, a question I've been very interested in, and I do try to get at it a little bit in the book. I have to admit that the cases, the way that I sort of set up the book, um, I wasn't able to quite uh, answer that question definitively just because of the way that I chose the, um, the case studies and things like that. What I, I do sort of surmise, and I, I, I leave it a little bit for uh, hopefully for some future research to, uh, to answer definitively, uh, but what I do say is that I think there is uh, at least an indirect link between having uh, local or sort of regional water conflicts within a country and making that, uh, making uh, international uh, issues or conflicts over water that much more uh, difficult to resolve. And, and the case I, I often point to is uh, that of China, where uh, we see a lot of um, interprovincial and interjurisdictional conflicts uh, over water in China, often over pollution that washes uh, from uh, like an upstream uh, city or province uh, downstream. And a lot of the reason that that happens uh, so frequently is that the incentives that local officials have in China really tend to prioritize economic growth over uh, environmental protection. At least that's been the case historically. It's changing a little bit now. And so you can actually map uh, highly polluting uh, industries, and you can see that a lot of them are clustered very close to the boundary between one uh, province or one jurisdiction uh, and another. So that the, it effectively, you know, the pollution just becomes someone else's problem. And I do think when you have this kind of scenario at the subnational level, um, it does kind of translate uh, upwards in terms of making it much more uh, challenging for uh, the national government to. Uh, to deal with uh, or to act cooperatively with respect to international uh, transboundary waterways. So your book is titled Subnational Hydropolitics, and you just mentioned uh, the case of China. And recently, uh, we've also come across news articles saying how India's water resources are going to be dropping radically, uh, almost by a third. And when you take into account population uh, increase, uh, demographic changes, as you mentioned earlier, uh, industrialization, so on and so forth, it's hard not to think that there will be major conflicts uh, coming up. Or perhaps that's just a fatalistic way to see it. But do you, where would you see the biggest potential for major conflicts over water in the coming years? Yeah, well, I think you you uh, you, you uh, almost answered <laughs> answered the question in the sense that I, I do think South Asia is is really the the single um, greatest hotspot for these kinds of issues, um, and I I think that um, because you know in, so in the book I kind of lay out three factors that I think shape the the potential basically for either conflict or cooperation over water um, at the subnational level. And the first of those factors has to do with decentralization. So in general, the more kind of decentralized a country is, uh, the greater the problem is of how you get different uh, regions, jurisdictions, and sort of people who share uh, waterways to cooperate, all of the things being equal. Um, second is uh, like identity politics. So where you have um, kind of pre-existing conflicts between um, ethnic or religious or linguistic groups that share uh, share a water resource, uh, you often see kind of uh, water become a focal point for those deeper tensions. It almost becomes like a stage on which some of these, you know, often very long-running um, sectional conflicts, I, I call them in the book, uh, unfold. Uh, and so you mentioned the Middle East earlier, and, and that that 
description, I think, applies to a lot of a lot of uh, uh, cases and contexts in the Middle East. Um, but then the third factor is basically how much how much of a role civil society actors and non-governmental organizations in particular can play. And I, I found in the book that when um, in a particular country there's a lot of space and scope for civil society to participate in water resource management and making decisions about how water is used and how it's managed, um, that can actually help to, uh, to prevent and resolve conflict. So I think there's no reason in general to assume that, um, uh, that even the sort of perfect storm scenario that I mentioned earlier will necessarily lead to uh, more conflict overall over water. But then there are parts of the world where I think based on those three factors, you will um, you will see greater risk. And South Asia, uh, I think, is particularly fraught for that because simply because of the fact that um, in, and in India in particular, to a lesser degree, Pakistan, uh, the boundaries of states reflect um, different uh, ethnic and linguistic groups. And you do see in virtually all the major rivers in India, uh, for example, um, a lot of kind of, you know, conflation of um, these identity politics with uh, shared waterways. And that makes them, when you start to get that conflation, when you start to see water being used as like a, a focal point of this kind of sectional or identity conflict, um, then it becomes really difficult to resolve. So I am concerned about this issue in South Asia in particular. You spoke about the space and scope for cooperation, especially if there's room for civil society to come in and other kind of leaders to, to come in and address this issue. But it still begs the question, how should such cooperation look like if we were to make it sustainable and lasting? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's... One problem in answering that question is that there's really no template. All you can do is say that there's a there's a best practice uh, process uh, that you can follow. And that, I think, at least based on the case studies that I looked at in the book, um, is to create um, decision-making bodies or institutions um, that are inclusive, meaning that they incorporate you know, civil society alongside uh, government, alongside uh, individual water user groups. So whether they're farmers or people who pay, you know, utility customers in cities, um, major industries. Um, so it should be inclusive, but it should also uh, have access to uh, good uh, data and information on uh, water use and on water availability. Uh, and so, in other words, it should have some kind of techno, uh, technical expertise backing it, uh, and it should be empowered to make uh, binding decisions. Because uh, I think, or what I found in the book is that when you uh, kind of open water management issues to uh, too much politicization, so when you make it uh, sort of the decision-making process too open, um, you tend to get it embroiled in these kind of uh, identity politics issues. So I think that there's a, a sort of best practice process in place, but that's going to look very different uh, in, in, in you know, particular countries. I mean, I will say that um, uh, one case I look at in the book is in France, and France has uh, created this model uh, where each of the country's major river basins have 
what's sometimes called a water parliament or a, a, a basin committee, um, uh, where half the representatives are uh, from the civil uh, civil society sector, 25% are from major water user groups, and 25% are from the government. Uh, each uh, committee has access to a specialized uh, kind of hydrologic office, so they that that will kind of help to answer some some questions around the science uh, behind uh, these shared water resources that the the individual committees govern, uh, and they're actually also empowered to to levy uh, some taxes and fees. So if the the committee decides, for example, that um, they want to improve water quality by investing in upgrades at water water treatment plants, they can actually self-finance that instead of going through the normal uh, central government budgeting process. And what that tends to mean is that these decision-making bodies have a lot more power, they have a lot more uh, resources and a lot more, uh, are basically much more effective than normal. And, and that uh, has proven pretty effective in um, resolving uh, conflicts between water users in France. Uh, that being said, you know, you, you struggle to imagine that kind of approach working in the U.S. You know, you would probably need a, need a different model uh, to say nothing of a, of a country like China. So I do think there are different models that need to be applied. And, and in the book, I do try to make some country-specific recommendations. So I'll just say briefly that, for example, in the case of India, uh, I advocate using a, a mechanism called the River Boards, which uh, was established um, in the Indian Constitution, but has never really been uh, been fully utilized as a way of at least getting uh, the right the right players together to try to address some of these long running conflicts. In uh, your recent piece that you published with the Foreign Affairs titled "How to Solve the Global Water Crisis," you mentioned uh, a term that. Uh, behavioral change, that uh, managing the water crisis will require behavioral change. And this really struck me. It really stood out because I immediately thought that this is going to be massively challenging simply because a lot of us who, you know, we turn on our taps and we have fresh water running, uh, we take water for granted and uh, change in any behavior, especially public behavior, uh, is going to be quite difficult. What's your take on that? Is this really possible? I do think it's possible. I mean, I think uh, behavioral change, you're right, that it's it's really hard. Uh, but, you know, I, w I will say um, a, a tool that is, has proven pretty effective uh, in changing uh, behavior, at least uh, at least in most cases, uh, has to do with with economics and, and aligning the incentives. And that that's why in that the piece that you mentioned, uh, I make a lot of the need to uh, reform uh, for for most countries and, and regions to really uh, reform how they uh, price water, meaning how they sort of try to uh, reflect uh, the fact that, you know, if you use too much water, that creates a lot of problems for other water users, for the environment, uh, imposes a lot of costs that, all, that are usually not reflected in, in, you know, how your water bill that you pay uh, every month. Um, that being said, you know, water is a little bit special, as I mentioned before, you know, it's, it's some, uh, a resource that you, you can't deprive anyone of uh, for any length of time. It, you know, that raises uh, obviously a lot of ethical issues, again, particularly for poor disadvantaged populations. Um, there are, of course, many parts of the world where water has a, a cultural and an aesthetic, uh, sometimes a religious value that's, that, that's hard to sort of uh, capture or address through pricing. But I think by and large, 
um, pricing and economic mechanisms are the best tool that we have for affecting behavior change. So uh, I do think that's, uh, that's necessary uh, and that's the best way to approach it uh, while also recognizing that, you know, you are going to have to make some accommodation. You know, it's not, not just about uh, raising rates across the board. It has to be done in a, a, a targeted and a, and a smart and a sensitive way to uh, the needs of particularly disadvantaged populations. So we've spoken about the economics and partly the institutional elements, uh, as you said earlier, about uh, hydropolitics. I want to change, turn our attention now to uh, the climate change uh, aspect of it, which I also find is uh, extremely important. Uh, how will climate change affect hydropolitics? Well, I think, um, I mean, there are several kind of facets of it. I do think it as a, you know, broadly, I mean, that's really uh, thinking about climate change and the the potential implications is really what, uh, why I wrote the book. I mean, you know, there's obviously a lot of discussion out there, a lot of uh, kind of questioning, well, you know, might one of the implications uh, of climate change be uh, increased conflict over natural resources, uh, you know, especially water. Uh, you often see that, that argument made. Um, what I argue in the book, um, though, is that that's really not necessarily true. Um, I think we could see uh, increased conflict in some parts of the world, but it really depends on how much we invest in our institutions. Um, so again, in those types of decision-making structures that would have the legitimacy, the authority, the resources, the capacity uh, to do things like you know, raise water prices or, or do other things that might affect behavioral change. And I think if we invest in those institutions, there's certainly nothing uh, inevitable about increased uh, conflict over water. Um, and you know, a big sort of message of the book is that the uh, likelihood of conflict or whether or not conflict occurs over water uh, has much less to do with scarcity than it does the role of institutions and these types of identity politics um, that I talked about. So I really think that while uh, climate change kind of raises the, uh, it does raise the risk, it does sort of uh, raise the need to pay attention to this issue, there's really nothing inevitable about it. We just need to uh, you know, be deliberate and, uh, and make the right, the right investments and efforts in, in our institutions now to ensure that uh, we don't have greater conflict over water as a result of climate change. Well, now that you talk about uh, making the right investments and uh, building the right institutions, I I have to ask, because you also spoke about Yemen and how the water levels in, in Yemen are dropping and uh, it's going to be a serious uh, water crisis there. What effects do you think will water mismanagement and even conflicts have on the migration movements uh, of people in the future? So I think there are some parts of the world where uh, that is a concern. And I think you're right that Yemen is maybe the best example of that. There, um, there are some others, um, you know, parts of East Africa, uh, potentially uh, parts of uh, Syria, Iraq, um, Jordan, possibly even Iran, where acute regional water, water scarcity might result in some significant deaths. But I, the point I would make about that is that it's really the scarcity in combination with other things. It's, it, and those things are particularly uh, what I would call institutional failures. So virtually every country that you know, I mentioned, region that I mentioned, uh, has very low institutional capacity. A place like Yemen you know, really only has a water problem because it, it's 
in active conflict. You know, I, I sometimes say Yemen only really has a water problem because it has a security problem uh, and a stability problem. Uh, and I think that that's, that's largely true for most, most places. Um, so uh, I think what that means is that, you know, you, if you want to address the water problem, you kind of also have to simultaneously address uh, the security situation and the economic situation. And if you were to stabilize those things, you could really make a lot of progress uh, on addressing the water situation and therefore also uh, preventing uh, significant uh, shifts in population. But but you're right that that does you know require uh, a lot of investment in you know in institutions and it requires a lot of resources. Um, the case of Yemen in particular is really interesting because without dramatic changes to how people use water, um, it's really hard to see how you can economically uh, supply water to uh, Sana'a, the capital, and the surrounding region, which actually lies about 2,000 meters above sea level. So, you know, desalination wouldn't be an option. Uh, and so, again, without, unless you have the right institutions and the, and the resources that would be able to fundamentally change how people use water, and in the case of Yemen, it's really about uh, decreasing the dependence on groundwater, then, you know, that, that does become a very dire situation. And it's hard to see how how you could really um, you could really address it. I want to connect um, an earlier point about behavioral change to economics, if you allow me. In the piece, sure. that we mentioned uh, how to solve the global water crisis from the foreign policy piece. You wrote that, and I quote: "Higher prices are uniquely good at motivating behavioral change." And uh, along in this piece, uh, you also argue that governments need to phase out subsidies for the water sector. So my question is, are you in favor of privatizing water supply? Well, first of all, you know, I, I would say that I, I, I mean, I stand by, I think, that statement in that um, I do think pricing is generally the, you know, one of the, the most effective tools to affect behavior change. It's not the only one, and it's certainly not always the most appropriate one. Um, so, I mean, there are other alternatives uh, you know, doing things like water saving campaigns where even you have uh, comparison, you know, uh, comparisons made between, you know, how much are, uh, are you or your neighborhood saving as, as opposed to uh, uh, neighbors. You know, those kinds of things can also be effective in uh, changing behavior. So I'm not saying that, you know, pricing is the only way or, or necessarily always the most appropriate way. But I do think by and large, it, it is often the most effective way. Um, but to answer your question directly, in some cases, not all. Um, you know, I think, again, it really depends on the context. There are some places where uh, publicly uh, owned utilities are pretty inefficient um, uh, and even more in which uh, publicly owned utilities or publicly operated utilities simply don't have uh, the cash to uh, make the necessary investments in water supply infrastructure. Uh, and, you know, you, you basically need... Uh, investment from a private source. Sorry, but, I, go ahead. but I'd have to push you a little bit more on this because I do find this a very interesting point. Uh, if we say we want to privatize, you know, even some uh, sectors, areas for water supply, the bottom line for the private sector is to make a profit across the globe, you know, hands down. Yes. But do we want to privatize and put, you know, the, these this most precious resource that we have um, 
into the hands of companies that are also, you know, one of the biggest companies to uh, who are polluting freshwater resources. They're buying up valuable underground resources, um, and they just want to make a buck. Um, and what what if we do say, okay, let's privatize? Then what role do they have to also be accountable to the public? Well, they certainly have a role. Um, I mean, I think I would make two points. One is that you know I I wouldn't advocate an across the board answer to your your question. I mean, what I would say is. You know, again, it kind of comes back to the need to have uh, legitimate and and uh, empowered institu- you know, decision-making bodies that that can make those decisions uh, at a, a local level. Uh, you know, what makes sense in one context probably isn't going to make sense in another. So, I I would want to first say that I think you need to invest in the institutions that are capable of making those decisions uh, in a way that reflects, you know, at least some degree of consensus among the people who are going to be affected. Um, But the second point is that, you know, all sort of private sector participation is not created equal. So, I mean, you know, we talk about privatization, but, um, you know, in reality, it's it's usually not the case that um, water supply is is sort of wholesale uh, given over to a, you know, sold to a private company. Much more often uh, you have uh, some type of public private partnership arrangement where uh, uh, private uh, company or uh, set of investors or consortium will provide uh, at least part of the capital for some specific water infrastructure. So maybe it's, uh, you know, a series of water treatment plants or uh, some pipes to, to carry water from reservoirs to, uh, to neighborhoods or whatever to the, the end users. Uh, and then in exchange, the, the uh, investors will get, you know, some percentage of uh, the money that uh, water users pay to to get that water. Now, you know, egregious uh, uh, kind of price gouging and things like that. So I'm not saying that your concerns, the concerns you raise, aren't valid. But I, I don't think it's I don't think it, you should necessarily paint the issue of privatization with a really broad brush, because equally uh, there are cases where um, private sector investment has has delivered. I think what it, by what any fair uh, judgment would say are, are, are uh, is a valuable service to the public uh, and and really you know gains for the for the public good uh, and again I, I come back to the point that you know a lot of cities just just sort of flat out uh, for you know financial and other reasons just haven't been making the investments that they need to in providing uh, for uh, public water supply so uh, pop, Private sector involvement is, uh, you know, a sort of a necessity in a lot of cases. And I think what what's the most important and, and necessary step is to make sure that the right safeguards are in place and the right institutions are in place. Try to make sure that when uh, private investment is used in, in water supply, that it's done in, in a responsible way and that that indeed serves the public good. I mean, fundamentally, no one, uh, well, at least no one I know, we, you know, would would advocate uh, turning over something like uh, water supply, uh, you know, simply as a means of, uh, of lining somebody's pockets. Yeah, maybe my, my concerns are a result of the fact that I'm talking to you sitting from a socialist capitalist country. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and I also don't want to sound too much like a, a stereotype of a world banker. I mean, you know, I, 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 I fully recognize that, uh, you know, there are there are cases that that you know, have, have been egregious and, and that should give people pause. And so that's why I would, you know, say again, well, the first priority is to make sure that you have the right uh, institutions and safeguards in place. And only then uh, should you consider something like uh, public-private partnerships or, or 
uh, even privatization of, uh, of water supply infrastructure. Let me leave you with this one final question, Scott, and um, just briefly, what would you like to see policymakers do to prevent uh, and also resolve subnational water conflicts? And uh, you can maybe pick a case uh, study that you've come across. Sure. Well, you know, let me let me kind of come back to the case of India, because uh, I do think it's it's probably the single um, uh, country and region that, that that's at risk of of this type of uh, subnational water conflict, um, preventing not only uh, sustainable uh, water use, but also, uh, I think, causing some some fairly significant political instability uh, more broadly. So I think the the first move uh, is to utilize um, the mechanisms that the Indian Constitution put in place uh, to deal with shared water resources. So I mentioned the river boards, and it's actually worth noting that um, when the Constitution of India was written, uh, the uh, framers of the Constitution uh, explicitly thought about this problem of interstate conflict over water because it was uh, something that existed uh, before independence uh, between the uh, often between the, the British ruled parts of, in, of India and the, um, the parts that were under uh, indigenous uh, jurisdiction. Um, and so they actually did include mechanisms and provisions in the Constitution to allow the central government to sort of have a role in trying to prevent and resolve these conflicts. Um, so I think using those types of mechanisms is really important. But I would also say, you know, because um, uh, in the cases that I looked at in the book, and, and India is probably the best example, these identity politics play um, the biggest role in, in uh, causing conflict and especially allowing it to persist over time. I do think politicians have a role to play and some responsibility uh, in not using water as a way to divide people. And that is often what you see, especially uh, in India and in the subcontinent more generally, where uh, state-level politicians in particular will, you know, sort of try to whip up uh, popular sentiment, try to turn out uh, people to vote by alleging that, you know, so-and-so from the opposition party gave away your water to the, uh, the neighboring state. You see that kind of formula very frequently. And then, so I do think politicians have a responsibility to avoid that kind of uh, rhetoric, you know, I mean, whether it's over water or anything else, that's just uh, irresponsible uh, and does much more to divide people than uh, than anything else. And and the irony, and this will be my, you know, I'll leave you with this thought. The irony is that uh, water is uh, at least as uh, conducive, I think, to cooperation uh, between people as uh, as it is as a, as a cause of conflict. I mean, um, that's often been. Uh, noted, but the the nature of, of a lot of issues that people have with water, wh whether it's deciding you know who gets how much or uh, how to do things like uh, like prevent pollution, it really requires a lot of uh, a lot of cooperation. And, and frequently, you find that when while it's sometimes hard to sort of get that cooperation started, um, that when it does get started, and, and another case that I look at in the book, the case of the Colorado, is a really good example of this. Once you do sort of you know, make that jump into a more cooperative spirit, it really does turn out to be better for everyone. And there are tremendous gains to be made from uh, cooperating rather than engaging in conflict. Well, let's hope that this uh, will 
lead to more cooperation rather than conflict. Uh, it's been fascinating talking to you about this uh, very important issue, but I'm afraid our time is coming to an end. I want to thank you, Scott, for coming on to the Global Futures podcast. Scott Moore's book, Subnational Hydropolitics, published by the Oxford University Press, is out now, and it's highly recommendable and timely piece of work. Scott, thanks again. Thank you, Joel. This episode of the Global Futures podcast was presented by me, Joel Sandu, with support from Yulia Reichler and produced by Sonia Sugrobova from the Global Public Policy Institute. Our guest today was Scott Moore. For a full list of Global Governance Futures products, including scenario reports, opinion pieces, interviews, and other podcasts, visit ggfutures.net forward slash analysis.